Good morning and welcome to Wave Wakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Tom. And I'm Janet. Today's Wavemaker is Gary Wisnotsky, who has been making waves in the strawberry industry since 1974 when he joined the family business now known as Wish Farms. Gary's grandfather, a Ukrainian immigrant, started the business 100 years ago with a pushcart in New York City. Today, Wish Farms is Florida's largest berry grower and shipper. The company was featured in a 2019 New Yorker magazine article about its efforts to build the first strawberry picking robot. And Gary just published a book called Generations of Sweetness, Stories That Shaped My Family and the Journey to Wish Farms. It traces the family's history from the pushcart days to its first strawberry farm in 1987 and its innovations in harvesting. Gary, thank Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you both very much. Uh, it's my pleasure. And if you want to join our conversation, ask Gary a question or tell him how much you love his berries, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. The irascible John Dunn is waiting to take your call. That's 813-239-9663. Or you can send us an email to dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. So, Gary, you know, a lot of people talk about writing a book, but you actually did it. What prompted this book? So, it was really the 100-year anniversary that um, made me get in gear and actually do it. I had written down a lot of stories in the past of my father, especially back in the late 90s. I started writing his stories because um, he, he didn't write them down before he passed away in 1988. But um, I want to also I want to give thanks to Chris Sherman and uh, Story Farm who helped me put it together. Chris was very instrumental in doing some of the research and also helping me compile the stories. I had this, the raw material. I had blog posts I had done and and different stories I had written down, but I didn't really have a good way to put it all together in the book. And Chris did a great job and his team to put it into a book form. He, for knows, he knows food being the former restaurant critic for the Tampa Bay Times he sure and, does. and uh, Florida Trend. Um, how did you research it? You said you didn't have a lot of the stories, so how did you research it? Well, the stories, I, they're just basically my own and stories and family stories, but some of the research in particular about the um, the environment and, and the Ukraine and Russia when my grandfather came over, Chris was instrumental in doing that, as well as just um, he did a lot of local research and some of the, the there's some facts and figures that I, I didn't know and things that I actually learned from some of the research he did. Well, tell us a little bit about that. It's in the book, but tell us a little bit about the story of your grandfather and um, how he came here and and came to have a pushcart. Yeah, so the, the people in uh, Eastern Europe at that time, the Jewish community, they, they really weren't allowed to have businesses. And I didn't even, I didn't know that fact. That was something that Chris taught me in his research. But there was, um, there it was the pale of civilization. There was um, folks that were of A Jewish. lot of discrimination. There was. So he he left. He got out. Um, yeah, the, the czars were at the time, the czar at the time was... Um, uh, you know, oppressive, and mm -hmm. he decided it was time to leave. And so he, he was in Kiev. 
He was. But it was a Russian control. It was. I have always said he came from Russia, but, you know, it, it was later became Ukraine, obviously. Right. But, yeah, so, but when he immigrated, he came uh, over on a ship in 1904, came into the city, and the only thing that he knew, and a lot of the uh, Eastern Europeans knew, were push carts. So the whole uh, New York City, uh, especially the uh, lower Manhattan, there was all these um, push cart vendors, and that's how he got started with a single push cart. And I think back in those days, they rented them and, they, mm-hmm. and they, he went to the, the local um, auction or local market and, and bought things to fill his push cart. He, um, after a while, he started making uh, money. So he bought more push carts. He had folks working for him and he had a fleet of push carts. Then he joined forces with another push cart vendor, Daniel Nathel, who uh, they, they, Together, they went to the auction market and started buying whole carloads, um, mm-hmm. railroad, railroad cars of uh, fruits and vegetables. And sometimes they had more than their push carts could handle. So that's how the wholesale business got started. Mm-hmm. And it was in the 1920s, he had a buyer in Florida here in, in Plant City that was uh, buying strawberries for him and shipping them up to him in New York City after they had started the wholesale business. And it was 1929, he came to Plant City uh, to just visit the area, and he, he loved what he saw, and he decided he'd set up a winter home here, which he did. And then in 1937, moved the family down full-time. To Plant City. And at that yeah. point... Plant City had already established itself as the winter strawberry capital. Yeah, what's America, interesting, right? uh, yes, the strawberry industry dates back to the 1880s. Uh, and the reason the strawberry industry grew up in Plant City in central Florida was because of the railroad, mm-hmm. because that provided a means of transportation up to the northern markets. Because strawberries are a very delicate plant. That's one of the things I found fascinating about your book. I didn't really know much about strawberries. I eat a lot of strawberries, but uh, they're very delicate uh, tell us about what it is about strawberries. It's so difficult to harvest and ship. Well, strawberries are one of the only fruits that I, I know of that doesn't ripen after it's been picked. So you have to pick strawberries at the exact peak of, of ripeness because that's what you're going to get on the shelf after you ship them. So, and they have to be handled delicately because they are picked ripe. Uh, the the strawberry field has to be picked about every three, maybe four days if the weather's cold. And we make about 40 passes over a field during the course of a strawberry season. And that's, we're just picking the ripe strawberries off and leaving the, the greens and the you know, less mature fruit. To, to and then uh, they don't last very long, right? Well, uh, it depends. You know, it depends on the weather, depends on uh, the time of the season. But they, from the time they pick them, they can last a couple weeks or more. But back in uh, the turn of the 20th century... Uh, oh, yes, before modern refrigeration. Before modern refrigeration. How were they getting the strawberries from Plant City to New York City? Well, they shipped them on express cars. <laughs> and they, they did have ice bunkers back early on that they used to fill. The, the berries uh, in the early days were packed in what they called reefers, not the kind that you smoke. <laughs> but they were in these wooden boxes, mm-hmm. and there was like layers of berries, and then they, they stacked ice on mm-hmm. top to, you know, to chill the, the, the reefer down where it would keep the, the berries cool. Huh. And so, so your, your grandfather first came down to Plant City, because he already had a business relationship with a uh, with wholesaler down here? Yes, he had a, a buyer that was buying for him on, on the auction market. 
and he, the buyer was shipping them up to New York City, and that's what prompted him to come down and, and, and see the area because he was already, you know, doing business here. I want to. We, we were talking a little bit about your grandfather coming here, and and um, in 1904, and at Ellis Island they changed his name. But your name is Wishnotsky, and yes. oddly, they didn't change the last name. For some reason, they changed his first name. Yes, um, I, I think that happened to a lot of people. Back well, my then. family, they changed our last name. Like, we Didn't were they? Volkov when they came into Ellis Island, and they changed it to Wilkoff. It was easier to say. But your grandfather's name was Gershon. Yeah, Gershon. Gersh- yes. Gershon. Yes. And they changed it to... Uh, to Harris. To Harris. <laughs> I don't know how that came about. But they was, kept the Wishnotsky. That's right, yes. But it didn't necessarily stick, right? His family continued with his given name? Yes, uh, he was in the family. I think he was called Gershon Boy. So I'm not sure where the boy part came from, but Gershon Boy was what he was known as. So he established the business, and then your father was in the business, and your father had an uncanny math ability. Is that correct? Oh, he was incredible. Him and my uncle r- ran the business together from 1955 on when my grandfather passed away. My father, he, he, he was a human computer when it came to us doing math problems. I've never seen anything like it before or after. Um, he could divide uh, and, and keep running totals in his head. When he was buying berries on the auction market, he would buy berries all day long, and, and each lot would be little small lots. You know, it was a lot of growers back then, and he'd buy um, maybe 29 pints at 15 cents, 30 pints at 17 cents. He would keep a, a running average in his head. He knew within a tenth of a penny what his average was for the day. So he might be buying berries all day long, competing against other buyers, and he, he knew. And at the end of the day, he, or during the middle of the day, my grandfather, uh, him, could communicate via phone or whatever and he would tell him you know my average is 18.3 cents so far and you said he used to do like a parlor game where he would have people give him three digit numbers and he'd just shout out the numbers at him and he would add them all up and he could get the sum in seconds yes he one of the things he liked to do to maybe show off a little bit with his math ability he'd give somebody a piece of paper and a pencil and he'd say i'll write down three digit numbers in a column as fast as you can write them and he would get agitated if somebody was writing too slow. <laughs> He'd go, write faster, write faster. And he, he would write 20, 30 uh, three-digit numbers. And he would, uh, he, at the end of the time you got done writing, he'd take the pencil and draw a line and write down the total. <laughs> and, and then you entered the business in um, 1987, is that correct? Or no, 1974 uh, yes, you 74. entered the business. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I was. Um, I went to one semester of uh, at USF and decided I wanted to go to work and uh, learn the business from my dad, and I, which I did. I actually went back to USF in the 1980s and took some business courses. Still don't have a degree, but I um, I, I learned enough to you know be able to understand financial. But uh, you statements. you started. You did not start in the front office, even though it was the family business. Tell us about that. No, I started doing every job in the packing house. I I started grading uh, cucumbers and peppers on the on the line. I I pushed a hand truck. I unloaded boxcars, loaded and unloaded trucks. I I pretty much did it all. I and I did. My dad kind of wanted me to like be a foreman right out of the gate, and I said I can't do that. I said I don't know the job, so I wanted to learn the jobs um, in which I did. 
did. And I feel like I was probably a better boss when I was a boss a few years later. Mm -hmm. So now you know the business from uh, bottom to top. I do, although it's changed a lot. Oh <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit before. But before we get to those changes, I find it fascinating that your grandfather moved from the the hard scrabble streets of New York City. He's a Jewish immigrant into Plant City, where let's face it. Not a lot of Jews there. No, it was probably culture, at the culture shock. It was a culture shock, yeah. Well, he actually moved, uh, the, he had a house in Lakeland, which was nearby, obviously. And he, um, he, you know, he commuted from Lakeland all the time. But he, when he came to Florida, um, my dad was in his senior year of high school. And it was definitely a culture shock for him coming from Brooklyn to Lakeland. Yeah, I'll bet for a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. So back then, um, you mentioned that there were a lot more strawberry farms and farmers Strawberry farms were smaller, all family um, owned. Is that the was that what it was like that? When my grandfather came to Plant City, there was literally thousands of uh, small family growers, and the size of the farm was basically dictated by the size of the family because the more kids you had, the more pickers you had, and that's how it worked back then. And back then, they had strawberry schools. Yes, the strawberry schools. They ended that in the 1950s. Fascinating story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because I don't think most people are aware uh, that in Hillsborough County, there was almost a separate education system for uh, the people in Plant City. Yes, Eastern Hillsborough County had the strawberry schools, which meant hmm. the kids went to school all summer long so they could be off during the winter to pick strawberries. And there was quite an um, uproar and debate. And that's actually one of the things that, that Chris researched. I, I knew about it, but he, he actually came back with some details about some of the um, uh, debates within the county commission and different places to, um, to end the strawberry schools in the 1950s. Yeah, the Tampa Tribune was on a crusade to improve education in Florida, and that was one of the aspects of their crusade was that they were very critical of these strawberry schools. Yes, it's certainly not something that would be acceptable so today. So did the closing of the strawberry schools affect the industry, or was it the other way around? The industry was already changing. It was changing. It it, it kind of moved to these um, these migratory people, and back in those days it was just a, a men that would travel uh, and follow the crops so it, it, the size of the farms began to get bigger so that you know, a lot of the farms scaled to um, become more efficient. And by the 1960s, the farms were already scaling to bigger sizes. And back then, you know, maybe a big farm was 20, 30, 40 acres. Now the average farm in Florida is probably more like 150 to 200 acres. So it's continued to um, evolve. You'd have to have a lot of kids to to uh, pick those. Strawberries. Oh, yes. <laughs> and what's kind of interesting is that the blueberry industry here has kind of evolved the same way, although much later. It was in the 1990s when, when Florida blueberries started being grown, and they started out with all small farms, and now that's also the economies of scale has, has changed. It used to be mom-and-pop growers, one and two acres of blueberries, and now that's changed also. Uh -huh. And now, of course, when you first got into this business, you were not growing strawberries. When I was buying your strawberries, I thought, you know, you were growing strawberries, but... Uh you didn't really start growing strawberries until when? 1987 is when we bought the first property to start our own farm. And my thinking at that time was we needed a supply that we could count on from year to year because growers were getting to a certain size and then they would, they would start their own sales organization or they would sell fruit, you know, for cash and we would be expecting them and wouldn't get them. So we started our own farm to give us a supply we could count on. And today we're growing about 30 to 40% or 
our own, whereas, you know, the rest are still coming from outside growers. And actually, many of the same families that my grandfather dealt with mm-hmm. back in his day. So, yeah, the, the, the transition is, you know, where we're growing our own. It's not where we're growing all of our own. It's uh, we're still. And you're only growing strawberries, though. No, we do grow blueberries here in uh, Central Florida in El Torres. We have a 40-acre organic blueberry farm oh, okay. that we're partnered in. And then then we also, in California, we have a raspberry farm that we grow. And then we have some investments for blackberries and raspberries in, in Mexico also. But do you also uh, um, do other ve- uh, fruits and vegetables? It's not just berries, correct? Or? No, these days it's just berries. These days just berries, okay. Yeah, it was a little over 10 years ago, my... People came to me and they said, you know what, we think we need to focus on berries. And that's what we did. We, we, we dropped all the vegetable line. We stopped growing vegetables and we are strictly a berry house these days. You're listening to Wave Makers on WMNF Tampa with Janet and Tom. And our guest is Gary Wishnatsky, whose family business, Wish Farms, has long sold um, Florida bear, strawberries around the country. And they're selling Florida's biggest berry seller. Um, and this is community-sponsored commercial free radio. We are powered by volunteers like me and listeners like you who support the station. You can show your support by going to WMNF.org and hitting the tip jar to make a donation. You can also join our conversation, ask Gary a question um, by giving us a call at 813-239-9663 or sending us an email to dj at wmnf.org. We do have an email right now from David Bryant, um, and he he wants to know um, if you could speak about uh, farm workers. This is what David says. One thing that irritates me the most about Trumpism is the demonization of migrant farm workers and other immigrants to the U.S. Because your guests speak about how important it is to have these workers here to pick our crops. I'm pretty sure that Wish Farms berries would rot on the ground without these workers and their labor. We should celebrate these workers and not demonize them. So do you use my farm workers or what? how, how yeah, are your berries picked? I, I can't pick them all myself. <laughs> we have quite a few acres. Uh, our company owned farm down in Duet is about 800 acres of, of berries that we're growing. I believe it's the largest contiguous uh, strawberry farm in the world. I've put that out there to people and I haven't um, been... Nobody's challenged you on that yet. haven't been disputed yet. We'll say it's true. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, farm workers are vital to our economy, to our our industry. You know, we we couldn't uh, get the crops picked if we didn't have uh, the workers. Uh, What's happened, though, in in recent years is a transition where we are dependent more on H-2A, the guest worker program, uh, domestic people that want to pick strawberries, there are not very many of them left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have a workforce during the peak of the season down there of about 800 to 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. There's only maybe a 100 or so that are, are domestic, and the rest are, are contracts uh, for guest workers that are coming in, you know, they, they come in on a visa and then they, mm-hmm. they leave after the season. Do they go to other farms elsewhere in the United States before they have to ho- go back home? Well, there's a, a timeline. I'm not sure exactly. I think it's something like nine or maybe 10 months that they can be here. So some of them stay, but because the, the strawberry crop lasts a long time, we, you know, we start harvesting in October and we we're, we just actually this week is the last of our crop that we're picking at our duet farm. We're um, picking some berries for processing this week and a little bit of fresh. I was going to say the strawberries I'm seeing in the store seem to be from California. Most of them are at this point, yes. Blueberries from Florida, though. I got blueberries from Florida yesterday. Yeah, we have some great blueberries right now. We do. 
Backbreaking labor, though. So talk about how difficult this job is. It's really tough. I mean, that's I assume why, you did that job too. Yeah, nobody raises their kids to in the United States to be a strawberry picker. <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing is, you know, the, the demographics too. It, it's a it's a young person's job. It's it's like you said, it's hard work, and. Uh, you know, when people, the, the population that was here that was doing it, you know, were, was aging. And there weren't the young people, the second generation immigrants coming in that would do it. It's, it's always been the first generation immigrants that do the hard work that mm-hmm. nobody wants to do from building the railroad to, you know, picking crops. It's, it's, yep. it's hard work. And, and second generation uh, kids aren't doing that work. And that's why we're so dependent these days on the um, guest worker program. Are you having a hard time getting workers? Uh, not with the guest worker program. We're, we're, we're adequately. Pretty good supply. We, we did come up a little short a few times this year because there's nowhere to source workers locally. And you've got to uh, apply for these visas well in advance. So if you are short workers, you really don't have a solution. You just end up having to let part of the, the field go. I mean, that's how it works. And it must be a lot of training in this because it's not like picking, you know, I don't know, watermelon. You know, you pick a watermelon and then it's, it's going to ripen and... Yeah, I, I, that's exactly right. I mean, people think about uh, some of this work as unskilled work. It's not. There's absolutely a skill and a learning curve to, to being able to do it and do it efficiently. Uh, back several times, I remember back in 2008 during the, um, uh, you know, when the economy was, was bad and people were looking for work and uh, were out of work. Uh, there are people come to the farm to apply and, you know, to, to pick strawberries. And the uh, average American person doesn't last more than a, a day. <laughs> it's usually hours, <laughs> not days. It, it's got to be really tough work. It is. Which it brings me to one of the more fascinating uh, projects you have underway, uh, which is uh, trying to, to develop basically a robot that would pick strawberries. And as you just described... That's got a pretty pretty smart robot. We're very close to a commercial machine right now. We've we've got um, we've gone through several iterations. We had Barry Seven in the field. Next year we have um, Barry Eight, and we'll have some. Um, with, providing we get all the financing we need, which I believe we're. That's on the, the name path. of the machine. Is that what you're or the robot is? We're calling it Barry. Well, well, we call him Harv. Harv, okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, Barry Eight is the, is the uh, version that we're on. Okay. And that's um, it, it's an autonomous machine. And I tell people this is the only path forward. This is the only way to get into the future with the demographics of the world. You know, people look at the population of the world growing, but what they don't they don't a lot of people don't realize is that the, the growth is because people are going to live longer and are aging, and there's a more or less a flat line of people under um, that are young under eighteen, mm-hmm. and so you, you see this curve where the population's going up, but the amount of young people in the world is not going up; it's staying flat. So right. that and this is a a big problem for things yep. that require physical hard work, right. and that's why robotics is the only path forward. Hmm. If if we're going to have affordable and, avail- and readily available crops. Otherwise, we could revert back to when I started in the 1970s, we had um, berries were a luxury item during mm-hmm. the wintertime. And that's what I fear. If we don't solve the problem we have with robotics, um, they, they could become a luxury item. Okay, again. so that's interesting. So they were a luxury item because they only grew a certain time of year and they were difficult to ship? 
Is Yes, they were at high price. The local grocery stores didn't even carry them until usually March when the prices came down. The, the early berries all went to New York City or other big markets, Chicago, where they fetched big prices and they went to the bakeries and pe- people couldn't afford them. So because, the, you know, it was hard work. So now you have... You generally are providing berries year-round, which Farms does, and you do that because you have farms in Florida and farms in California that you're working with. Yes, Is that on, stra- on strawberries. Strawberries. Now, now on blueberries, we're, we're sourcing and, and working with growers all over North and South America. Uh, raspberries and blackberries. Uh, raspberries are California and Mexico. Blackberries, you've, we've got um, some West Coast, but um, you, you have Mexico and some of the Southeast also. So what percentage of your business is a logistics operation? Um, it's, it's just about all logistics, you know, trying to <laughs> you know, supply the supermarket chains and, and get move berries from point A to point B and get them there in a timely manner and fill orders, and it's, it's all measured. Is that, and where is that all done from? Is that done from Plant City? or? Yes, our, our new headquarters in Plant City was where everything happens, uh, where all the logistics and all of the, the sales and the coordination uh, takes place. We've got a beautiful new headquarters on Interstate 4, uh, the Park Road exit in Plant City. Yeah, we've got some really cool stuff there too. We got a treehouse. We've got um, why the treehouse? A slide. Well, a treehouse with a slide at their corporate headquarters. I was just ahead of my time. I mean, we, yeah. you know, with you know, trying to retain and recruit people. I mean, it's really made it a lot easier when we have uh, oh, cool. some cool features. Mm-hmm. We, we have an in-house um, fitness center. We've got a we serve lunch every day for employees. Um, we've got a cafe there. We got a slide from the second floor to the first floor. And do you serve? Serve um, Wish Farms berries in the cafeteria. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's part of the daily salads that are made. And how often do you eat berries? And how do you eat them? My God, I, I eat berries every day on my cereal. And believe it or not, I, you know we grow organic and conventional both. Mm-hmm. I, I eat the conventional ones, and I, I'm still doing okay. <laughs> how do you decide which? Why are you growing certain organic and certain conventional? Why the split? Why not all one or the other? Well, it, it, the demand, you know, there's um, there's a segment of the population that demand organics and supermarkets have a customer. So they, they carry both side by side, most of the supermarkets these days. And, you know, we're just trying to fill demand for both because mm-hmm. not everybody wants to pay the Pay the premium, price. yeah, yeah. So getting back to this robot for a second. Yeah. Since uh, you have to pick berries only when they're ripe, how does the robot know when a berry's ripe? Yeah, it's got a. Um, it, it, okay, I didn't design it. <laughs> I was the inspiration and some of the money behind it. Yeah, but um, uh, Bob Pitzer, he's the uh, he's the, the the brains behind it. He's the guy that came up with the um, the, the way that it, it's done, and he put the team together. We have twenty engineers that are working on this. So there's there's. AI. I mean, he may argue with me it's not really AI, but I, I'd say it is. You know, we, we have a, a vision system that can detect a, a ripe berry from a green berry and, and be able to go in and, and you know, pinpoint accurately, mm-hmm. put a claw down to pick it. I mean, that to me is um, some form of intelligence to get that done. So, but it's, um, it, it's really quite impressive to, to see. Um, Harvest Crew, that's spelled C-R-O-O. Dot com. There's some. Um, there's some actually some video online if somebody wanted to see it. But not only does it have to be intelligent enough to know the difference between a ripe berry and a not ripe berry, it also has to be able to pick it 
and it's delicate and can't crush it. How, how does that work? Well, we're using a soft silicon rubber uh, claws that um, that kind of cup the berry f- pretty gently. And not to say that there's not any damage because there there can be a percentage of damage. But let's face it, the, the human pickers they mm-hmm. they damage fruit too. So it's it, the whole thing with the Harvest Crew Robotics is that we need to be have parity with with the um, people that are doing it. So as long as we can not damage them anymore and be as efficient at picking and get as many off the plant as the the people are doing, uh, we've succeeded. Uh, this is you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Tom and Janet. Our guest is Gary Wishnotsky, CEO of Wish Farms, and we'll be right back. Want to hear what one listener called the most disrespectful show he's heard in 20 years? Join Donna, Liz, and Amina at 10 a.m. on Thursdays for Surly Voices. A fresh, fun, feminist take on current events, politics, and social justice. Slaying the patriarchy, one show at a time. Surly Voices, Thursday at 10 a.m. on WMNF 88.5 and WMNF.org. That's the Surly Voices on Thursday, and today you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Tom and Janet, and our guest is Gary Wishnotsky, CEO of Wish Farms. And Gary has just published a book uh, about his century-old family business, fourth-generation run. It's called Generations of Sweetness, Stories That Shape My Family and the Journey to Wish Farms. So let's talk about this title, Wish Farms. You used to have a different brand. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we back in the day when I started, it was Wishnatsky and Nathel, and my grandfather's partner, um, Daniel Nathel, and him that started the business. Mm-hmm. It was 2001 that we split, and then we became Wishnatsky Farms. But it was during the 2000s uh, aughts that I recognized that our brand wasn't very well recognized on the shelves, and I wanted to uh, do something that was a little bit uh, more memorable. So we did a survey, 400 people in the state of Florida, only one person unaided could name uh, us as a strawberry brand, and they misspelled hmm. our name. They couldn't spell Wishnatsky. Right. So that's, <laughs> I said, okay, well, there's an opportunity here, and that's what prompted us. When I dropped the, the Wishnatsky to made it Wish, um, there was a little pushback within the family, and the idea was, well, you're going to change your grandfather's name. What are you doing? Why are you? I said, well, and then I thought about it, and I said, look, my grandfather, when he came to Central Florida in 1929, nobody called him Mr. Wishnatsky. They all called him Mr. Wish. Ah. <laughs> so Wish was kind of a natural transition for us. And then we came up with Misty the Garden Pixie as our icon. Uh, that was uh, Chapel Roberts here in Tampa. Helped oh, okay. Develop that, um, okay. that icon that we have now. And that rest, sort of a make a wish. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the, actually one of the concepts looked a little bit like the stars and make a wish. I said, no, that's too close to make a wish. I don't want to go that direction. And but uh, Misty the Garden Pixie was the perfect fit for us. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Um, uh, so, speaking of which, we have somebody. This is interesting. I was just about to ask, are you going to do anything special to celebrate your hundredth anniversary? And then we have this email from somebody who says, "Could your guest speak about the cool concert that was held at Wish Farms last April? I think it was a charity fundraiser. It might have been two years ago." So we were talking about that before we went on the air about you doing actual concerts out there. Yeah, we had uh, last year. We had uh, Young the Giant, Blackhawk, and the in the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Uh, we hosted at our place. This year, November twelfth is the hundred year. Uh, 
celebration is going to be off the charts cool. We, we've got uh, four major national rec- recognized bands lined up. Uh, it's Pixie Rock, uh, and there's a website, pixierock.org. Uh, it's, it's a charity event. Uh, all the proceeds uh, go into the Wish Farms Family Foundation. And the event itself, the cost of it, we, we underwrite the whole thing. And, and any money that we raise from ticket sales and um, promotions and sponsorships goes directly into the foundation. And what is the foundation uh, doing? Yeah, so we have uh, three pillars. It's uh, education, uh, or as early childhood education, uh, food insecurity, and community. And so uh, this year's beneficiaries are going to be the uh, Shriners Children's Hospitals, and uh, Feeding Tampa Bay. Feeding Tampa Bay is working on a new facility, a new ca- capital campaign. Great nonprofit. Yeah, and we do a lot of um, work with them. We, we donate a lot of berries to them at times. And, yeah, we, we this is going to help support them. Well, and um, uh, we have an email from Carl Brandis who says, Shout out and many thanks to Gary for all he and his family foundation do for our community. Wish Farms Berries are the best. So that's Carl. Thanks, Carl. We also have an email from Doug who... Um, asks this. Um, listening to the fact that you have 80 acres of a farm, there's two questions here, Gary. You have um, 80 acres of a farm dedicated to strawberries. Have you considered the sustainability and the impact of the environment in this process? How could you take advantage of companion planting to assist local nature? So that's number one, environmental impact companion planting. And could you speak to the idea of charging an extra dollar a box for berries and notifying customers that the extra, extra dollar goes directly into the lives of those who pick the strawberries? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, you know, so we, we started the first uh, commercial organic farm back in the early 2000s. Um, nobody was growing organic strawberries here. So the cool thing about when we got into organics, uh, we were, you know, we used less chemicals. Well, we didn't use any commercial chemicals, mm-hmm. but we were using, you know, things that were legal for organics. Right. But what we started to see was that you know, some of the chemicals that we were using on the conventional side, we were not seeing the benefit because on the organic side, we weren't using those chemicals. Right. And we were saying, oh, now why are we using those? So it it actually led to us um, changing some of our our protocols and, and, you know, our... On the conventional strawberries. On the conventional strawberries because of that. So that was pretty cool. So, and, you know, it's good for the bottom line too, obviously, because you're you know, spending less on, you know, inputs, it, right. it's, it's good for, it helps everybody. Excellent. And what about water? It must take a lot of water to well, grow these Well, actually, not so much. I mean, we're, uh, it's, everything's on drip irrigation. The only time we use any volume of water is uh, during uh, plant establishment because mm-hmm. we're putting in a bare root plant that requires extra watering when we first put it in. And then during a freeze event, and that we haven't had that many freeze events in recent years. We haven't, have we? And that's no, interesting. We it used to be a very common sight. Every winter, we'd see the strawberry farmers uh, starting up their their sprinklers, yeah. which I always thought was in, when I first moved to Florida, what an odd thing. We're going to right. protect the strawberries by putting ice on them. Yes, I know. Right, yeah. But that's, um, yeah, so the, the water question, we, we don't use much water at all. Don't use much water. Um, we've got a phone call now from Eric and St. Pete. He's got a question for you. Eric and St. Pete, you're on the line. Hi, how's it going? Good, right. thanks for calling. Awesome. Uh, I, I'm an urban farmer. I have a couple little small plots where I live in St. Pete. And I was just wondering, I wanted to ask if you ever thought about branching out into 
a little bit more of the rare or unconventional berries uh, since we have, you know, the climate here for that. When you say unconventional, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but, you know, we are doing something very unconventional now with our pine berries that we're growing, uh, which are unique with the variety that was developed um, with natural hybridization by the University of Florida. Um, it's a, a white strawberry that has a pink blush when it's ripe. And they're currently they're locally a- available here in a, in a few stores. If I'm allowed to mention those, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aldi and um, also at the Fresh Market are both carrying them local, and oh, okay. other other stores will probably have them soon as well. Eric, is that what is you your... had in mind, or was there yeah. something else? Uh, yeah, that, I actually have the pine berries. They're delicious. There's just uh, I don't know if you you like frequent any of the farmers markets, but there's like a wide variety of fruits and vegetables that grow in Florida, especially berries that aren't commercially available at the grocery store. So I was just wondering, just want to ask. No, I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, learning because we're, we're absolutely always looking for new things. So yeah, you want to take it offline later and uh, any berries you want to recommend <laughs> Eric? Uh, I, I've got a lot, uh, a good starter that, kind of i feel like could make it big is a miracle berry have you folks heard of that oh you know what we actually have and we have a little blueberry farm at our um corporate headquarters a couple acres and we've got a little row of um of miracle berries yes we do yeah it's Ah. they're kind of a novelty i don't know if uh, listeners know what they are but it's a it's a little um berry that you eat just one and you uh, chew around the seed and spit the seed out and at, for the next hour or two after you eat it anything that has any acidity has a, a sweet taste really so you can eat a lemon <laughs> and it has it tastes like it's uh, lemonade it's crazy now are you growing them just for the just, heck of it or just for the heck of it oh okay all right <laughs> yeah i'm friends with a miracle fruit man uh, curtis mosey from south florida who kind of began to popularize interesting it. anything yeah. else eric that was really interesting <laughs> No, uh, I appreciate y'all having me on. Have a good day. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Um, we also, um, John wants to wants us to ask, did you give out the book title? So I'm going to give out the book title again. We did at the beginning, but the book title is... Um, Generations of is. Sweetness. Generations of Sweetness, Stories That Shape My Family and the Journey of Wish Farms. I had it right in front of me, and I'm here searching for it. Generations of Sweetness, coincidentally, is our, our new tagline for our um, for our company. Where can people get the book? Yeah, it's just, uh, actually, just on Amazon today. I just looked it up. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's... It only came up under my last name, which is really a little bit difficult. I tried searching it by the uh, Generations of Sweetness, and it didn't come up. But if you search Wishnatsky, I think it'll come up. And we, we've only talked about three generations so far, but what is the what, who's the fourth generation that's with the family? Because it's four generations, correct? Yes, I've got two children, my son Nick and my daughter Elizabeth. Uh, Nick is currently our, our PR manager. Um, Elizabeth is raising our my grandkids right now, but she will probably come back to work at some point too. She was working in uh, marketing for a while. Uh, her husband, uh, James Peterson, is my VP of, of sales, does a fabulous job at that. And then Nick, my son's uh, husband, he is uh, our, our, our PR, um, he does payables. Mm-hmm. So he's uh, in working in the accounting department. So I've got uh, three family members currently at, at work every day, and I see them. It's great having the family there with me. So you've had a lot of successes in this long family business, um, and you have really built on the successes of your previous generations. Uh, your, your book has a fascinating chapter about one 
I guess not a success, but kind of maybe you were a little too far ahead of the times, which was the Alessi uh, Farm. or The Alessi oh. Farmer's Market. Alessi Farmer's Market. Yeah, I was partners with Phil Alessi. Uh, Phil Alessi recently passed away, unfortunately. But yeah, we, we started a, a, a store in North Tampa, and it was uh, all kind of things went wrong. It didn't work out, but it was a it was a beautiful story. It was a precursor to the Whole Foods of today. It really had things that Whole Foods doesn't even have today, and you know, in the um, and Green Wise, and it, it was uh, definitely a, uh, ahead of its time. I think yeah, you know, we had live uh, fish tanks and mm-hmm. you know, Dungeness crabs live, and we had uh, a bakery in there, a deli. That, making- that was in the eighties. Yeah, I used to go there all the time. FYI, late eighties. Yes, <laughs> it's yes. not my fault it didn't do well. Okay, so you. Do I was there it. all the time. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. It was like really exciting. That's what you're saying. It wasn't. It was. They didn't have that kind of stuff in Tampa then, and so it was, it was a great food hall. It was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, visitors came. They brought you know people from out of town. It was really kind of a show place at the time. Did you learn anything from that experience? Yes, I don't want to do retail. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, so you have um, also in your book, you talk about, you did this whole rebranding. So we'll talk about all the various things that you did. So one of the, Gary, one of the first things you did, well, not one of the first things you did, but one of the things you did was have them build the um, start into farming. Um, you rebranded. You've got the new berries. You've got the the pink berries. You've got the robots. Um, and one of the things that it looks like that you guys did when you rebranded was created a, a business model called the Pixie Ways, right. which is the, the 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 three core values are quality, integrity, and responsiveness. Correct. And what are some of the values that are in place to make sure that those that you always meet those goals of your quality, integrity, and responsiveness. Well, one of the things we heard a speaker at uh, one of our Vistage meetings back um, a few several years ago now, and it, it was about culture, and it was about you know maintaining a, a culture. And at the time, we, we and we still do we have a great culture in our company. Mm-hmm. You know, real people treat each other with respect, and the really great work ethic, and all of the good things you want in employees. But one of the things I learned was culture can change over time. It's pretty much controlled by the strongest voice in the room. Mm-hmm. So if you're not careful, your culture can evolve or devolve. And Which doesn't necessarily have to be the CEO. Right. Yeah. So that's what led us to uh, create what we call the Pixie Ways. There's 33 of them. They're actually listed in the book. So I, I don't remember all of them. I do remember uh, several. Um, yeah, our number one is uh, never compromise on food safety. Mm-hmm. So that was, of course. Yeah, the rest yeah. of them are somewhat random in, in the placement, but I thought that should be number one. And then uh, the last one, the 33rd one is protect the brand. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, like we want to always do right by the brand and, you know, treat each other with decency, um, be innovative. I mean, these are just a few of them. But so the the idea of of these um, pixie ways is is just something that we work on every week. We have one that we focus on, though. And and at the end of each week, we go to the next one. Mm-hmm. So and then we get to the top of the bottom of the list. We start over again and do it over again with yeah. all your employees. So we somebody writes up um, something about what it means to them each week. I did the first thirty three weeks, and then uh, employees are now taking the lead on the next thirty three. And well, a lot of them are about um, you know how to treat each other. Yes. It seems like a lot of it is about be fun, be kind, be honest, treat each other with decency, be easy to work with. You know, it's about creating a culture of a place where 
people can pull together and work as really a team and a family. Yeah, this is for the future generations. As long as I'm around, I mean, people are going to treat each other that way. But I want to make sure it carries on, and I want to make sure it's kind of cemented in our our culture. Is that this is how we how we do business? And that must extend to your business partners that you've been working with apparently for a hundred years. I mean, yes, it's pretty amazing that you're continuing to still work with the same businesses that your company has been working with for a century. Exactly. It's um, pretty incredible that we've gone this long. It's pretty incredible that the third generation owner haven't screwed it up. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of screwing up, why go shopping for strawberries? (laughs) My wife always gives me a hard time because maybe I've picked the strawberries that are not, maybe they're too ripe. Suggestions for our listeners when you're picking strawberries or when you're shopping for strawberries in the store, what should you look for? Look for ones that don't have mold on them. Right. <laughs> look for ones that, but, but ripe to me is good. I, I always like to take the ripe ones home. Right. You know, I, I always look for ripe berries myself. I go for the, what, the ones that have the strongest smell. If they have the sweetest smell, I feel like that that is a sign that they're, they're ready. That's certainly an indicator. And yes. no mold because right. it's that perfect, that perfect blend <laughs> right in the middle there. That's right. And what's your favorite way of consuming strawberries? You know, I eat strawberries and, and blueberries and, and recently pine berries because the pine berries right now are so sweet and good. I've, my cereal is always berries. I have um, my all bran and uh, grape nuts in the morning. I put uh, fresh berries on it. This, this week, it's all pine berries and blueberries because they're both running so good. What do the pine berries taste like? You know, it's really an interesting um, flavor. It's, you know, it, it tastes... A, Sort of like a strawberry, but it's a little bit milder, a little less mm-hmm. acidic. Sometimes you can pick up notes of pineapple or pear or peach. And I've eaten berries from the same um, plant that they, they, each one tastes a little bit different. You know, right. So you get different notes. It's almost like tasting wine. You go, oh, I'm getting a little pear. A little Why peach. was that? What was the motivation for developing that berry? Is it resistant to disease or... It- can stand to a different kind of environment? What is it that's special about it other than its look? So I first started seeing pine berries, um, uh, pictures and uh, articles from England back in the late 2000 aughts. And I, I was interested in it. And I started talking to our, our breeder at University of Florida, Vance Whitaker, about, you know, and, and he had already been, he was already on it when I started talking to him. So he's been working on it since about 2011, I think. And he's um, he came up with this variety. He he got some white strawberries from Japan that he mm-hmm. crossed them with uh, the, some Florida varieties. And you know, they, uh. I want to point out and reiterate that they, these are this is not GMO. These berries were grown or developed, you know, with just natural hybridization, taking the pollen from one flower and putting it in another, and, and just developing these new varieties. But it's but, licensed to be used only in Florida, or what's the situation with the yes. University of Florida? So Florida growers are. are uh, Florida Strawberry Growers Association has the license for them, and they license them to Florida growers. So we're, we're growing them here in Florida, but by virtue of the fact that we're a Florida grower, we're allowed to grow them in California. So we have about 150 acres in California currently, and that's the ones that you'll find in the stores right now are, are California ones. But the California ones are, are really tasting great right mm-hmm. now. This is sort of like the next Gatorade for the University of Florida, I guess. Yeah, it is. They got some extra royalties from it, too, because the regular red varieties, they just get a a royalty on plants, but they get a a royalty on the fruit on this as well. So it's it's quite a, um, you know, there's not a lot of acres of them yet, but uh, what they're making per acre is is quite Hmm. impressive. Um, We've got a call from John in Plant City, actually. John is on the line. 
Um, and John has some questions about some of the environmental impacts of um, the strawberry, strawberry business. So, John, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, doing this show. This is really nice. I'm, I really, I'm really looking forward to the Wave Makers program every week. Oh, uh, good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and, you know, I, I was really impressed when uh, this, the, the new corporate headquarters started coming up and they had these, these, uh, these uh, cutouts of these uh, people that apparently had worked there at Wish Farms. And uh, to, to honor them, and I, I really have to compliment, uh, you know, the leadership there at Wisknowski for uh, recognizing these people like that. But, you know, kind of, you know, I'm sort of an environmentalist and, we, we grow, you know, we're just a market grower, and we actually live next to a large uh, strawberry farm. And um, the, the Williamson family, that, that you know, does a pretty good job. And you can tell because of the turnover of the workers that they're doing a good job with the, as employers. And then, too, the, the way they environmentally they do things, too. Uh, two of the big concerns of mine about strawberry farming, of course, are the fertilizer and, and how that fertilizer is produced from, I guess, natural gas or petroleum. And uh, uh, apparently the prices are going up. But, I, you know, I always kind of wonder about uh, the, the uh, you say that you grow a lot of organic berries and, and what you use in place of, uh, that, that, uh, you know, the normal fertilizer. And, and then also the ag plastic. And, you know, it's just a tremendous amount of that that's used and then, Strawberries being, you know, not a year crop, that, you know, this is always taken up and every replaced every year. Now, some of it is recycled, but here in Hillsborough County, they burn that, you know, at the end of the year in, in the spring. And, you know, I don't know. It, we, you know I, what do they burn? I'm sorry, John. What do they burn? They, they take the plastic off of the fields. Oh, and burn it. In the, yeah, and burn it right on site. And, you know, the, of course, most of the, the farm workers are ready to get out of town, and they don't like the job. Well, who would like a job like that anyhow? And it usually just kind of smolders for a couple of days. But, but anyhow, like I was saying, my neighbor, they actually still, they, they hire people to haul that to the landfill. Now, you know, there's problems with that, too. But maybe just ask uh, your guest about that. Uh, and, and like I say, I really appreciate what, the people there at Risk Nowski have done for, uh, you know, the Plant City area. They're a great employer and a great business. And thanks again for the show. Right, thanks, thanks for calling, John. What about that, Gary? What yeah, is? Uh, thank you. Um, unfortunately, yeah, there, it, 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 that, it does occur. And unfortunately, that is the only means that we have right now. Now, we have worked with some companies on some biodegradable type plastics. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, we haven't found the right combination or mix yet, but we are very much um, interested in, in finding a, a better solution for how we're doing it now. We're, we're looking at all different types of ways to reduce plastic usage. And it can't be reused? Uh, it, it can, unfortunately. It's a, it's a one-season mm. thing. And that, you know, some growers do grow uh, two crops on it. They grow two seasons. And, you know, that sometimes doesn't get the best uh, results on yield, though. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're definitely looking for ways to re reduce uh, the use of plastic or to come up with a different way to... You know, just personally, 
I, I'm a big fruit and vegetable eater, and it just pains me every time I go to the store. And I want, I mean, this is not for farming, but just for purchasing like so much plastic to buy arugula or to buy spinach or to buy berries or whatever it is. And, and how do you, you know, I try to even reuse that plastic, but it's, it's a little bit, you know, different when you're in European markets or maybe even a bigger city where you can, you're buying it in bulk and it's just not all pre-plastic. Yeah, there's an industry it's movement. Pre-packaged. Uh, there's definitely an industry movement for ways to re- reduce the plastic usage. One of the things that we're doing is um, Aldi has a requirement, which we comply with, is to um, do a top seal mm-hmm. on, on our blueberries. So that's about a 30% reduction in oh. plastic. Because you're not uh, using that uh, the, the the lid portion. So Aldi requires that. Is it specifically to reduce plastic it's a, it's use? On, on blueberries, yes. And huh. and there's a, a movement uh, in the U.S. with retailers and with uh, marketers that we're we're all we have a, a, a group that that we that's been put together by the industry that we're we're part of. My son uh, leads that effort. Mm-hmm. And my son Nick. And we're, we're trying to f- figure out ways to reduce plastic oh, use. Oh, great. Uh, the, the problem with, with like plastic in the supermarket is consumers want a, the visibility. So people say they don't want the plastic, but there's, and there's a segment that would you know, go to a pulp or do something else and be happy with that. But in the case of strawberries, people want to be able to see what they look like because mm-hmm. it makes sure that they're still in good shape. Yep. Yeah. So if, yeah. you, if you have them hidden. That, that interesting thing, though, with, with the robotics... I think that's going to be a game changer in a lot of ways. But one of the things is if we go to an automated, like a a top seal of a a pulp container, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the the reasons that you you want to see what's on the bottom is because people pick them and pack them. And and the people sometimes can put a bad one in the bottom. And Mm -hmm. if you can't see the bottom, you can't trust it. But if you have AI grading them, you know, we we have a, a... patented system for how we're uh, not only picking them with the robotics, but, but packing them. And so if consumers began to trust that the robotic packed strawberries are going to be all good all the way through, maybe that could be a, a way to, to right. move away from plastic. Yep. Um, cardboard, like, uh, in little, but that's where then you can't see actually what they look like at the bottom. So exactly. that's why they don't do it. Well, Gary, um, thanks so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, Thanks to all of our callers and listeners um, who called and and, uh, and emailed today. Thanks everyone who called and emailed. Thanks to John for um, answering our phones. Up next will be NPR News, followed by three hours of music with um, Scott Elliott. He is filling in for um, Harrison Nash today. Um, And if you know a wave maker, please give us, uh, send an email to dj at wmnf.org and put um, wave makers in the subject line. Um, We'd love to hear your ideas for um, uh, future shows. Um, and again, thank you very much for being here. This Thanks, is- Gary, so much for uh, sharing your family story with us. Well, thank you. This is WMNF in Tampa. Good. Okay.